All right. All right, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Let's, uh, how are we? One. We good? Getting the thumbs up from Sam, so that feels right. Hi. Hi, everybody. Hello, good morning. All right. Uh, we're going to pray and then get started. Yes? Okie dokie. Let's pray. Uh, almighty and ever-living God, thank you for another day. Thank you that it's cold. Um, thank you that we're through some of the heat. Um, Lord, thank you that we have somewhere warm to be. God, it is in and through your Son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are, uh, I said last week that we finished up Acts 3, and that's sort of true. We did, in a big way, uh, get through all of the stuff that was huge in Acts 3, but there's some more that I wanted to talk about just at the very, very end, and then we'll jump right into Acts 4 in probably four minutes. Yes? Sound good? So last week, we did talk a lot about universal restoration, right? What that looks like. We talked about heaven. We talked about... Um, uh, these um, times of refreshment, right? And uh, we didn't super talk about what that might look like. N.T. Wright has this wonderful quote, um, where the times of refreshment for the Christian come from our experience of worship together from sacrament. In reading the scriptures, in Christian fellowship, in prayer, we taste in advance just a little bit of the coming together of heaven and earth. The sense that this is what we were made for. The new world which we shall finally enjoy. It's there, available, ready for all who seriously seek it. And so the question then becomes, where in our lives do we feel these times of refreshment, right? We talked about how um, that is the almost a prefigurement of this universal restoration. Where do we feel like we're doing what we were made to do? That's this times of refreshment. Where do we feel like we're affirmed and this is what we were made for. And that's a different answer for everyone, or it ought to be. Um, I think some of the big ones are moments of Christian fellowship, when we feel like we can actually be ourselves, like real Christian fellowship, not the, not the like, oh man, I feel like I have to do this. Or I feel like I'm going to get judged if I don't do this. But the, I feel like I'm in a safe place to be who I am. And to be honest about it, where I, I know for me, one of the biggest times of refreshment in my life was when I first came to the Episcopal Church. I came from um, a deeply evangelical, fundamentalist kind of tradition. And one of the reasons I came originally to the Episcopal Church was, uh, well, one of my roommates was an organist. And so <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I'll come. But I realized that the thing that drove me from, or had a big hand in, in kind of pushing me out of the fundamentalist kind of bubble was I, I lost the ability to believe a lot of the stuff that I used to believe. Um, it wasn't that I didn't want to. I just didn't. It, it, was, it felt like almost the, the shelving had fallen. I didn't have anywhere to put the stuff. And so because of that, I was looking for somewhere else. And it felt like for the first time when I entered an Episcopal church, those kind of inability to believe certain things or trouble with holding on to that stuff wasn't a liability, um, and it didn't get me put on prayer lists across the county. It didn't uh, bar me. Yeah, it didn't, and it didn't bar me from serving in church in places that I wanted to be. But I still love the church, but this was a place where it was like, yeah, honey, we stand on the creed 
alone. And one of the things that's amazing about the way that we worship is that we decide to be together. We don't, uh, we don't have to agree on every little thing. In fact, it's better if we don't. <laughs> and because of that, it's almost stronger in some ways because we have decided continually to be together. And so that was one of those times where it was like, oh, here's where I'm supposed to be because I can be here and I can bring everything that I have with me. And I know for me that was a time of huge refreshment and it continues to be. Um, it's one of the reasons I love the creed so much and we'll talk about this a little bit today in our uh, Instructed Eucharist at 10.30 where we kind of go through, here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. But one of the amazing things about the creed and especially in our like 1979 prayer book revision was it, it took the creed from I believe to we believe. And so it's suddenly, if I don't believe right now, thank God Alan has enough faith for both of us. Or when Alan doesn't believe right now, thank God I do. And thank God that the people around me have enough faith to continue to sustain this thing. And it's not all on me. It's not all about me. It's about this community. And so that was a moment of refreshment for me. So out loud or not, feel free to consider what are these times of refreshing where we feel like we're affirmed or we're doing what we were made to do. Because that is a prefigurement in no uncertain terms. Yes? Yes. 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 Yeah, and there were times, you know what, that's a really good way to put that, that like the times of refreshing are not necessarily all about <sighs> relaxing into it, but whether it's a, I've done the thing that I was made to do, or I've done this thing that I was supposed to be doing. Because again, even, even in my own example of being in a church that does affirm the things that me as a person, you know, that's great doesn't mean it's easy to be here all the time. It's always going to be that way when you're with other people, you know. So thank you. That's a really great point. Anybody else have anything here that they want to share? If not, please. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And for it to not be kind of that liability where it's like, people can say whatever they want to say. <laughs> we can talk about it. But no one's going to walk out of here being like, worried about them. <laughs> you know? And that's not the case everywhere. Yeah. Thank you all for indulging me in that. Um, so beyond this, uh, in, I'm just going to read this last part, because I took your Acts 3s away from you, and this is Acts 4. Or this is, you all have Acts 4, this is Acts 3. Um, but, uh, this, so this is Peter's speech, right? At the, after he's healed the lame beggar, after all of that, he's talked about universal restoration, times of refreshment, and he says, um, and all the prophets, as many as have spoken from Samuel and those after him, also predicted these days. You are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Uh, the part that I wanted to focus on was all the prophets predicted these days. So we've talked a bunch about some of the huge themes that are going on in Acts. Prophetic fulfillment, huge theme. So all the prophets predicted these days. Peter is rooting the promise of the restoration, founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember, because Christ has ascended, he's already been restored. And so that's another prefigurement that we were looking at in the words of the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's utterly important because it shows that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is not null and void at all. And that's not something we as Christians can believe even remotely. But it evinces Peter's use of the Old Testament as something that points unwaveringly all the prophets toward the promise of universal restoration. So we talked a little bit about, is this in the Old Testament? Absolutely, Peter says so. And then um, N.T. Wright, he is understanding the Old Testament as a single great story, which was constantly pointing forwards to something that God was going to do through Abraham and his family, something that Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, and the rest were pointing on towards as well. This great something was the restoration of all things, the time when everything would be put right at last. So, last week we talked about heaven, and we talked about kind of different views of heaven and stuff, and how one of the things that I said was I, I believe a certain thing about heaven and earth and the restoration, and a lot of that is rooted in the very character of God, in the very nature of how God does things in the world. Peter's saying the same thing, because he's saying, look back at how God has acted forever. Look back at how God has acted through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the prophets. Look at the promises that were made and see how they're continuing through to today. He's rooting everything in the nature, character, and promises of God from the beginning to now. More importantly than any of the history, though, is its impact and import on the present. Peter is saying that this is not just something that was said in the past or even something that we're still sitting around waiting for, but that it's already happened, and it happened in Jesus. And we all, Jewish people included, get to be a part of this. And that is the end of chapter 3. Okay, so now we're moving into chapter 4, which I think is this one. It is. And I don't know if you all can tell, but I've discovered Canva, and I have been playing around in a big way with Canva. I've been having the best time. <laughs> and I want to thank my boss for... Uh, giving me the uh, account for the, the the pro account that we use at church because I didn't have that for the first one, and now look at this. Uh, <laughs> thanks, y'all. Thanks. Yeah. Just, did I paint this? Absolutely. I was gonna say this is this is really this is what y'all pay me to do. Thanks. Uh, big fan. Uh, so Acts chapter four. Um, so right, isn't this beautiful? And <laughs> I did spend too much time on this, um, but. <laughs> Uh, so this is the recap and breakdown. Oh, this is great. So Peter heals the blind beggar, check. Peter's speech at Solomon's portico, check. What we're going to see in Acts 4, and we're going to try and get through all of this today because I would love to, because we're going to take about a month-long break during Advent, and so I want to get through this thing before we come back because we're about to start something brand new because Acts, Acts 3 and 4 really sets up everything that's coming later. So Peter and John are taken before the council. We'll see that today. Peter's speech before that council. Peter and John released. Believers praying for boldness and believers having everything in common. If we, this is, so we'll get to it, but this I'm actually not going to talk about today uh, because 
this is so linked to what happens in chapter five, it's better to just talk about it then. So, this makes sense, everyone good? Excellent. Um, can somebody read for me Acts 4, 1 through 6? Mary Beth, can you pick up 7 through 12? Okay, so seven, so one through twelve, we've got the arrest and we've got the speech, right? What do we see here? What's worth stopping at, I guess? Yes, right? That's pretty consistent that we've seen, right? That this was your doing, right? Yes. What else? Yes, isn't that great? Whoa, yeah. Yes, yes, I love that. And that kind of um, at the end of chapter two, we talked about how they had the goodwill of all people, right? That was something that was said. Was and actually, I think I have it here. Um, yeah, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people, and day by day, the Lord added to their midst. So they're doing a good thing for someone who is actually outside of their community. Right? This is the goodwill of all people. Anything else? Okay, well, I've got some stuff. Some. Um, so in Jesus, there is resurrection from the dead. That is the, that's the thing that annoyed the temple authorities, right? They weren't necessarily annoyed that they were talking. That was very common. But it was the claim that in Jesus, there is resurrection from the dead. So... There are two things here. I think that the annoyance comes from the fact that in Jesus and that there's resurrection. That's two things. So why is the proclamation of the resurrection in the name and power of Jesus something the temple authorities might find greatly annoying? So, yes, Sam. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, very, very good and insightful too. So, one of the things we have to know in this, and you kind of nailed it, was there are, there are 
the temple authorities are kind of broken down. There's the captain of the guard and the other guard. Those are simply hired hands who are there for security. Very important people because they are also part of the temple authority. We also have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Those are two groups of people. Does anyone know the difference between them? Yes, I'm hearing a CNES. Yes. Yes, so the Sadducees believed in the Pentateuch, right? They believed in the Torah alone. And so those are the first five books. And they did not believe in a resurrection. They thought that this world was it, still a good thing, still worthy of praise, but they did not believe in a resurrection of the body. They did not believe in necessarily miraculous events. And then we have the Sadducees who did believe because they also had the rest of the Hebrew scriptures that they took as scripture, but they did not necessarily believe that Jesus was the one who was going to bring about that resurrection. So we have Sadducees who are mad at resurrection. We have Pharisees that are mad at Jesus. We have captains of the guard and the other guard who are paid to be mad about all of it. Yes? <laughs> right. So that is, I think, uh, Sam nailed it. Um, either way, the temple authorities, Sadducees or Pharisees, saw the resurrection from the dead, specifically in the power and name of Jesus, as having already happened and prefiguring the restoration of all things. It was a supreme threat to power and posterity for those who were already in power. This meant that God was on the move and that they weren't with God. And this was simply unconscionable to them because they held all religious power. And so if this did happen, it meant that God was moving without them, and that couldn't happen. So this was a threat to their power, control, and authority in their area and with their people. Um, so Acts, oh yeah, and then, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, yep. It's, yeah, it's even worse because it's not just, oh, we're doing this thing by the same power that Jesus was doing it. That's like, ah, maybe. But the fact that, oh, Jesus, you couldn't kill Jesus. Well, you did, and then he said, nope. And so he's back. He came back from the dead. That's already a threat. And then to say, and now we're performing miracles, bringing new life, prefiguring the universal restoration of all things in that same power, by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's a huge threat to their entire power base. Resurrection was always a radical, dangerous doctrine, an attack on the status quo and a threat to existing power structures. Resurrection is the belief that declares the living God is going to put everything right once and for all, is going to restore all things, to turn the world the right way up at last. And that is a terrifying notion. If you found yourself on the other side of it and you weren't expecting it. You want to fight it and rage against the proclamation of your belief system letting you down in this way. So their reaction makes perfect sense if you buy what they bought. But when, when they see, and this is one of the things that uh, a lot of what's called liberation theology in, in, in uh, certain corners of Christianity will talk about resurrection in a very political way, which is not a wrong thing to do, but because a life on the other side of this one does threaten the powers that are in this life. And so for the poor and the marginalized, for the people who are at the corners, are oppressed, the hope of resurrection means that this ain't it. 
And in fact, this is nothing in comparison. And so why does what you say matter? And so that is, or why does the, the things that the powers that be say have any real meaning or effect? And so we fight for what's coming next. And so that's kind of this very political take on resurrection. It's incredibly important, um, but it's very, very threatening to power structures. Um, moreover, it was a terrifying notion because this was not just that God raised Jesus from the dead, but this was the start and the sign of God's eventual restoration of all things. Yes? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a huge part of it, too. Because the thing is, Jesus' message, it wasn't apolitical. Because politics are simply how people are arranged in spaces, right? And who has access to those spaces and who those people are. Um, that's at core what politics are. Jesus was all about that, but they wanted a militaristic Messiah. They wanted someone who was going to rise up and take the stuff back from Rome because they were like under the thumb of an oppressive empire. And Jesus came, and he was lowly and meek, and they didn't want that. And so when they put him to death, because it was like, all right, dude, we can't. And he came back, and Paul says he, they, he put to shame the powers and principalities. Because those same powers and principalities that would use militarism to change the world as they saw fit are the same ones that put our God to death, and to which our God willingly submitted and then came back and said, that wasn't enough, because it's not enough. It's not enough to just make the world as we see fit by bombing it into submission. That's not what real power, even political power is. And he showed that. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Um, there are several people who saw, and honestly, there's a really, it's a fun, good argument that you will see in, uh, later in chapter four, um, and some in chapter five by a guy named Gamaliel, um, who actually taught Paul, he was Paul's teacher as a Pharisee, um, but where he says, like, well, if this happened, gosh, we might be wrong, boys, like, and, uh, like, these signs and wonders standing as evidence to what did occur. And so, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. He appeared for 40 days. He taught for 40 days. He appeared to the 10 in the upper room. He appeared to Thomas not long after that. And then there are other times in Acts that we'll see where he, the risen Christ appeared to Paul and apparently 500 others. Um, so it's not that they didn't know what was going on. They just didn't want it to be happening. Sure, absolutely it was a fake news thing. <laughs> it was a deep fake. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a threat to them as well. Because if you have no one to step on, if you have no one to build a hierarchy on top of, what are you? You know? Um, one of my friends. He's lovely, and, and he, uh, he, I went to seminary with him, and um, he said, he always said that there are, there are people who 
cannot um, get respect and adoration from their peers, so they seek it from a title. And we all know people like that. Um, and it's, uh, it's tough to be around those people. And so when that title goes away because there is someone or something out there that does have respect and adoration without needing to have some kind of title, without needing to have some kind of hierarchy, without needing to have all this stuff, ugh, yikes, that's a threat, right? <laughs> to those who have fought and clawed for that title, for that kind of political or social capital and power. And I mean, especially in our church, like, it's tough because we are in, in some ways a very hierarchical church. We're the Episcopal church, church with bishops. Hierarchy isn't at its core a bad thing at all. But when it's hierarchy for hierarchy's sake, yes. When it's hierarchy for power's sake, for not the sake of others, not for the sake of organization, not for the sake of helping, yeah, it sucks. That's just bad. So anyway, very good conversation today, folks. Um, and that brings us to uh, by what power or what name. Um, Peter answers to his healing of the beggar in the same way that Jesus did when he was asked if he was casting out in the name of Beelzebul. Uh, Peter claiming that he did this in the name of Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, same person, was a direct attack on the power of the establishment and authority of the day because they killed Jesus, and yet they could not hold his power at bay because he didn't stay dead. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is the same spirit that empowered Peter before the council and the same spirit that fell on him and the other apostles at Pentecost a few days earlier. So this is that kind of big Trinitarian motif that we're seeing all throughout here. We're seeing it's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and it's the spirit of God that did and it's that same spirit that is now empowering Peter before the council and the rest of the apostles from the point of Pentecost and the same that uh, healed the beggar. The stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. So this is a quote from Psalm 118, and it's sort of this cherry on top of Peter's speech to the council. Not only is he saying that there is a power at work in the world that they can't control, which is a threat, not only is that the power of God that they believe themselves to be worshiping, again, a threat, but in fact that same power of God let loose in the world is tearing down the structures of power that have upheld them and ensconced them in their culture and is building a new temple. This new temple is Jesus Christ himself, and he is that cornerstone. So if we remember in Mark, I think, 13, there's a point where Jesus says, I will tear down this temple in three days' time. And that was, whoa, that's a big reason we can look in the Gospels and see that he was put to death, because he threatened in a verbal way the powers that be. And so they put him to death. And so still, that temple, and we have to look at this through um, remember 70 AD, did I write this here? I don't remember, but I don't remember if I wrote this down, but 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, right? That's a big thing we have to keep in our minds here for the Jewish people. And so when we look at when Acts was written, we're looking at 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s. This is in the background of all of that. And though we're writing this, though we're reading this before it happened, right? Narratively, this all occurred before uh, 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple. We have to read this through the lens of that already having happened. And so Jesus claiming to be the stone that was rejected and that has become the cornerstone, everyone's reading that as, oh, he's the new temple. So the stone that was rejected from the temple has become the cornerstone, the building block, either cornerstone meaning the first stone that's laid and becomes the entire like blueprint and 
sort of foundation or cornerstone as this is a real nerdy biblical studies thing, but either in an archway when you have stone set up, the cornerstone might be that central one. And so that's, there's difference in the Greek and all of the different stuff, but we can get into it at some point. But that cornerstone being either the first thing on display and the most important thing or the thing that laid the foundation. Either one, we're saying the same thing. That this is truly how it's being built. This is truly what is happening here. So there's a lot here about the cornerstone being the foundation, firstborn of all creation in Colossians, and perhaps the stone that sits at the top of the arch uh, and sets the standard for the rest of the temple. But either way, the point is that Jesus is the foundation and builder of this new temple that is his very self. With the construction of the new temple, ah, there we go. There are some hints here that while this speech is being delivered before 70 AD, yes, we talked about that already, um, the old temple becomes obsolete, and that's the threat. So not only is the old temple destroyed, but even rebuilding it is obsolete because the power of God is on the move elsewhere outside of that temple. This whole speech is about, like we've talked about it a lot, but I just want to say it clearly, this entire thing is about a threat to power and power base and what it means. So, can someone read 13 to 22 for me? Yes. So, a couple things here. I really love, after threatening them again, like just that, like, all right, we got to get our last word. <laughs> I love that. Um, and second, 40 years old, at this, in the first century, that was the end of his life. Okay? He was on his way out. Unless you were in, in the aristocracy, this was it for you. Especially for a lame beggar, this dude had maybe five years before he was done. And... The fact that God is making old things new, this is the power of God in the world. And this like raising up of old things to new. In the, in the prayer book we have um, at, the, oh, oop, at the ordination service, the colleague for the ordination service is this big, beautiful prayer about how God is raising up things that have been cast down and he is making things that were dead to come back to life. This is just how God acts. God is in the business of making old things new. God is in the business of restoring things to how they ought to be and bringing things back to life. Um, this is one of my favorites. Just the, just the Greek here is so fun. Uh, uneducated and ordinary man. It's agramatos and idiotes. 
literally, they're idiots. Like, <laughs> they had this idea that Peter and John were idiots, unlettered and common or untrained. Were they uneducated, though? They were fishermen, yes, but uneducated. Were they? No. What is an education, truly? Because they didn't go to school? There is a... There's, um, I heard a sermon a couple, probably months ago when I was back in seminary, and it was from a, she was a priest, she was an excellent priest, very pastoral, um, but she, she kind of went on this long, kind of winded thing about how, like, Jesus came to the poor and the marginalized and, like, the uneducated. And there was this moment I was like, oh God, by whose standards? <laughs> like, because I know that you have a PhD, ma'am. Like, that's wonderful, good for you. But, like, this idea that these people were uneducated simply because they didn't, they were unlettered and common is, is a fascinating thing to me. Because, in reality, they walked with the living God for three years and heard him interpret scripture. That's a heck of an education, honestly. And I think for us, in a in a fairly, we're in a mainline denomination. Uh, per capita, our denomination has, uh, is more educated than any other denomination in the United States. Um, we have the most degrees, graduate and otherwise, uh, in our denomination. And it's not, that's not a bad thing, but I think for us, it's super easy to find ourselves being like, oh, if only people knew. And it's like, knew what? <laughs> Truly. Like, if only people had the same resources that we had. In some ways, maybe, but in a lot of other ways, no. Like, there is not the things that we can learn about Jesus Christ from people who have nothing, from people who don't have a formal education. My, one of my best friends in seminary, his grandmother, his great-grandmother, never learned to read and was the most faithful Christian woman he'd ever met. She had so much of the Bible memorized. She had so many stories known. She, had, she walked her whole life with the living God. And, and she was utterly, I think she had a third grade education before she had to drop out of school. That's this uneducated kind of thing. And so this is, again, think about how that would be if, if all of a sudden your priest and your clergy didn't have to have a graduate degree to be here. If all of a sudden it was like, oh man, here's a person with a third grade education who walks with the living God, who can be your priest, who is ordained to be with you. That's weird. That is uncomfortable in some ways. Not a bad thing though. And that's one thing I just wanted to kind of get to. Shoot, we are running out of time. Okay. Okay. What else did I write here? They had nothing to say in opposition. The obvious implication is that if they could deny it, they would. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, Rebecca. They could deny it, they would, even though they know it to be true. The only solution they can find, because they cannot deny the truth, is to hide it, to keep it from spreading further among the people. Once again, what is at stake here is control over the people, in this particular case by means of the control of information. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. The entire episode is continually about control. And because they had no control of the power of the Spirit and the boldness of the apostles, and because the apostles had the goodwill of all the people, end of chapter 2, the temple authorities had nothing to say in response. They had nothing 
He had no recourse. Where God's power is at work to bring real change, real healing, real new life, there the people who are naming the name of Jesus to bring it about can stand before judges, whether political or religious, and say with integrity that they are speaking for God. It will be costly, that's part of the deal, but it will be true. Um, okay, this is great. Oh, yes, we made it. Yay. So I'm actually just going to read this, and because it's, we're almost done here. Uh, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal in signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. This is, there's a lot here, including predestined to take place. We've talked about that a lot, right? Talked about that a good bit. We've talked about uh, Old Testament use in the New Testament. The thing that I wanted to focus on here was this is a prayer for boldness, not safety. That's unheard of. And, and, and it's scary. And this is used a lot in so many evangelical places and in a lot of very uber conservative fundamentalist things about like, we're fighting a culture war. Uh, we got to be bold and not safe. And sure, maybe, I no. But the reality is to claim the name of Christ in this way it will be costly, sure, but it'll be true, like N.T. Wright said. And so finding the strength, finding the boldness, the boldness that only comes from the name of Christ, and holding on to that, and that may look different in a lot of ways, including but not limited to serving people who the rest of the world writes off. Giving money to homeless people, even though they're just going to spend it on drugs. Sorry, our God says to give to all who ask, not all who ask and we deem them worthy of, of it. It doesn't matter, okay? That's what Christians do. It will be costly, socially, monetarily, physically, but it's worth it because it's true. That's what this is about. Okay, that is it. We did it, folks. We'll get to the rest of this in about a month. Okie dokie. Hey, good work, all.